Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Brenda Webster, getting into the details of microsolutions and working with nature, starting with the Waterfront Project. We'll recap a bit from where we left off. So sit back and enjoy. So coming back to Canada, um, I, I met someone and they said, oh, you should go down and, you know, talk to John Campbell and Chris Glazik at Waterfront Toronto. They're probably looking for someone like you. So I went and talked to them. And then I saw an opportunity, a bit like the competition, to help write the, um, the kind of language that would attract good designers to design buildings along the waterfront. So I became the client and, you know, we talked about, well, first of all, you have to not just write in text the way urban planners traditionally write, where there are a lot of words and there are like points of, you know, zoning bylaws and legal ease and so on. You've got to build almost, uh, you know, a very graphic novel about what you want and include images and diagrams. And so that's what we did. And we were able to attract, um, you know, architects from everywhere and landscape architects from everywhere to join us in, you know, the transforming of the waterfront. So my sense is that architects go into architecture because they love it. And, and there feels like this disconnect and, and I, it's part of why we started doing this podcast in, uh, in the first place is that we're trying to find where the gaps are. So you're coming uh, back to Toronto with this wealth of knowledge and, and this experience, and then it doesn't really exist here, but that's not to say that the people here don't want that too. It's just, why doesn't it exist? And and once you create it, they come, they they find you, and and they too want to be a part of what you're doing. Are these people predominantly in Canada, or are they from all over the world? Well, I mean, there are great practices in Toronto. Plenty of good designers in Toronto. Uh, it also has to do with uh, you know two of the most you know one of the most exciting projects was you know this project at Waterfront Toronto, where before the funding came, you know, all the focus was on Queen's Key and Chris Glazik was focused on that. And I was given, uh, you know, re-engaging, you know, building the mouth of the Don River, which now is center focus. But in 2010, nobody knew that it was actually being moved through this all three levels of government and you know finally in uh 2017 i think trudeau came to brickworks and said we're giving 1.5 billion to the building of this river um and it's now being built if you go down to the gardener you'll see it but basically it's um the brilliance of uh this one landscape architect in brooklyn michael van valkenberg who said, let's talk about the river as the agent of urbanism. And there, there are landscape architects who are city builders. In other words, they lead projects. Engineers report to them. Architects report to them. Ecologists, economists report to them. They set the line of the land and 
people design and build around it. And that's, you know, what we need more of today in the face of climate and the need for um, places in the public to live together and commune together and debate together and, you know, survive together in the face of climate change. Absolutely. I mean, so is that, is what you've just described happening in, I'm, under, I'm understanding that it's happening in Europe uh, and uh, Michael van Valkenburg is from Brooklyn that came to Toronto to, to work on this. So is the project... Well, he won a competition. So we ran a competition and there were local teams that also, um, you know, competed for it. And, and he won, won the competition and that was, you know, early 2000s. Um, and then my job was to take that vision and, you know, bring it through the web of uh, laws and uh, economic, um, you know, interlacings of ownership, both vertical and horizontal, uh, the conservancy, uh, the uh, any historical? Yeah, just the layer historical. Well, anything that has to do with trying to cut a river through the um, what is the Portland's uh, environmental, uh, you know, layers of what what the Portland's had been. It, it was the largest um, single wetland. Um, in the Great Lakes, and it was filled in um, by us. And this river mouth for the Don River, in a way, it, it doesn't bring it back, but it does allow the river uh, a place to go. But it's cutting through plenty of, of contamination and layers of concrete and layers of, you know, it was called Hogtown because that's where all the pigs were rendered. If you look at photos from the 60s, it looks like polka dots because it's where we stored all our oil. So, you know, the Portland has a history like any other industrial port of layers of, of industry. And so to remove or change or adjust all that requires, you know, a kind of acupuncture approach to carefully pulling apart bits and not letting other bits out. So what you're describing to me is an, a ginormous uh, engineering feat. Um, and how how much um, how much does how much do you have to sell your idea? to people, to uh, people in government at all levels, uh, municipal, uh, provincial and federal, like there's just, it just seems, so we've had conversations with architects and designers who come from places where design is, is much more on the forefront, yet they have, they run into other challenges um, that sort of hinder the design process. Whereas here I'm sensing I've always sensed that Canada is not quite, um, they don't have the, the confidence to 
put design at the forefront. They're, they're just a little bit worried of making a mistake or worried about people getting hurt and, and making sure everyone's taken care of first before we design anything. Um, and, and so those are our hindrances because once we reassure everyone that it's going to be safe and everyone's going to be taken care of and, and everyone's going to enjoy it and life will be better, then we can start designing it. Um, did you encounter that with this enormous project? Well, I'm just going to go back for a second to the fabulous project um, that I've worked on, uh, the competition that we won in Berlin. So we won this competition in Berlin. Berlin has, uh, we were proposing a building that was a breathing building. So all 22 stories, you can open windows and it's called the GSW building and it brought Sauerbrot into fame. They now have 160 employees instead of 20. Um, and that went through several political um, elect elected politicians, several mayors, several, uh, you know, everybody was very afraid of the building. Uh, it had no drop ceilings. All the breathing of the building was either in the floor or in the windows themselves. No one had ever done anything like this. Uh, it took 10 years to get it to break ground. It won the Hague Prize for most environmental building ever long before it was even broke ground. Um, and it, it's just stunningly beautiful because one of the walls where all the panels are that you open um, are each painted a slightly different tone from, you know, pale pink to, to deep orange. And, and so it's a work of art when, when you're standing on the street that is adjusted by people in their offices. And even though it is such and it uses 40 percent of the energy of a typical building, it had to go through many more fire code tests, many more structural tests than any other building in Berlin ever. So I don't think it's unique in Canada or North America that we are risk averse. So I would say Berlin, anywhere in, in the world, when you're dealing with building and engineers, there is an aversion because there's such an extreme responsibility to protect human life. So I just want to say that first. Um, and then I'll say that that same building is now under threat. If you go to change.org, sign up to make it, keep it a breathing building because the current owner has decided he, he just wants to close it all off and he doesn't care if it uses three times as much energy, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, nothing is permanent and nothing is easy when it comes to the built environment. Now for the river, just to get back to the river in Toronto, which was originally called uh, Lower Donlands. Um, and it was under threat many, many times. In fact, uh, a, a, a one colleague of mine who was at Waterfront Toronto at the time, she and I, uh, we made a video, which is still on YouTube, called Sustainable Urban Design on Toronto's Waterfront when it was under threat. Um, and we collated this thing and I did the voiceover and she found someone with a mic. She was in our communications department. She said, we have to do this. And 
We used the video over and over whenever it was under threat, whether it was from uh, various agencies or, you know, determinations that it was economically not viable. Um, and in fact, people said, well, there's no such thing as, you know, flood, you know, there's never, no one ever has a, a flooded basement in Toronto. I'm just saying ridiculous things like that, because the point of this, the mouth of this river, not only is it beautiful and will there be, you know, stewards of this river when we build around it, but it also flood protects downtown and all the way into the east. Um, so it's actually a, a modern way of flood protecting. Instead of building up banks, you just let the water go where it wants to go into the inner harbor. And then you, you protect in that way. You give the water more room to move instead of banking up against that. Right now, the river goes at a you know, a 90 degree turn back towards downtown. So naturally rivers don't do that. So they flood. So we made this video. So every time someone, um, you know, particularly during uh, the Rob Ford era, the entire executive council voted against continuing the project saying there was no flood and that we should use the Portlands for a casino and a Ferris wheel instead. And during that time, um, we, we brought every single councillor, so there were 40-some councillors back then, not like the 20-something we have now, and every single one of them, it, within two weeks, we um, showed them why we should continue uh, with this project because it was about to be shut down, and it, and it would have been shut down if we had not uh, done that because um, it was 100% voted in by the executive council, and it just needed a nod two weeks later um, by the rest of council. So wow. um, I remember sitting in council and, you know, I never really was involved in politics at all, but it was myself and this woman, Marissa Piatelli, uh, who was also working at Waterfront Toronto at the time, was the former um, ambassador to Italy for Canada. And she uh, was the kind of government, you know, sort of smooth talker. And I was the one standing with the video showing what flood would happen if we didn't keep doing this and answering any questions that, you know, some of, uh, you know, deep in the executive council with Doug Ford and others who, who were, um, you know, I think really committed, had committed and had made promises to people that the Portlands would have a, a casino. So it, it, it became quite frightening at time when someone wants a casino, they want a casino. Yeah. I, so anyway, we got through that, uh, and and there was um, it, it was it was a good good feeling to get it back on track for sure. Wow. I I mean, to me, it makes total sense, and and I've heard of that kind of uh, project in other parts of the world, in Amsterdam and in Houston, um, where they they just build the structure around directing the water as opposed to trying to prevent the water from going. Um, exactly where they want and I mean water goes where water water wants to go and when you've got enormous volumes of water wanting to go somewhere you you can't stop it um, so that's yeah I think someone someone uh, recently wrote a book with that title actually in it I think um, uh, where it wants to go was the title or something like you know and the implication is water goes where it wants to go and that's quite right so and I think you're bringing up a very interesting point, Jennifer, because we're at a point 
um, well, we have been for you know quite a while now, where where we were so skilled at at predicting through the technology that we have and the the kind of mass data points that we have through phones and other other you know mostly phones, I suppose, um, that we can predict all sorts of things from where people move to to where you know what the temperature is and what the weather is. So we're at a point like that breathing building I was describing where we need to work with nature, not against it. You know, from the time, uh, you know, that we huddled, you know, uh, in a cave trying to get away from the rain and the snow so we could stay alive to Roman times where we started saying, okay, we're going to build a mass and the water is going to go into a tunnel and a bigger tunnel and it's going to all be collected somewhere and you know the lake will take care of it but we have such populations now that that we can't um you know micro solutions are 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 the new way and working with nature i think those are the two principles in in design that i care uh, quite a bit about right now which is micro solutions and working with nature if i could put it in a nutshell wow i i i've talked to you a couple of times and every single time i talk to you i've got like i ask one question and then i've got five more to ask you um <laughs> these then expanding on the the like is the water projects are those considered micro solutions or working with nature you no know, i'll give you a very simple example of a really fantastic thing that the city of Toronto did quite a while ago and it's a micro solution and they said disconnect your downspout from the municipal system now houses apartments condos before they made this rule all the water that came from the sky went down a downspout into a drain pipe into the municipal pipe system, putting a lot of pressure on our municipal system so that pipes would burst and so on. Now disconnecting, and through that disconnection, a lot of people have chosen to take that water and use it to water, to bring water to pervious services, to green spaces, to trees, to um, gardens. So that disconnection did a great service to us in the city of Toronto to connect water from the sky to our parks and gardens as opposed to into pipes underground. So that's a micro solution. Yeah. Okay. So then the the water rechanneling, that would be working with nature? So the, the water going from our roof to our garden, as opposed to going into our municipal system, all our pipes, just imagine when the water goes into the pipes, they burst. There's, there's too much water going into the pipes and it, and it mixes with our sewage in those pipes, by the way, combined sewer overflow. So we're taking perfectly good water. We're making it dirty. Okay, so that's another, okay, that's another definite. So when we, 
So when the city decided to disconnect, that was a micro solution. It was a very easy, very brilliant, very great micro solution that now takes the rainwater and leaves it where it needs to be in the green spaces in our city, as opposed to in a pipe, a dirty pipe underground. I mean, not dirty, but you know what I mean, less clean. <laughs> and, and it's not doing anyone any good. Our, you know, I, I wrote this article recently for our company, Stantec. It's called Sponge City. If you just go Sponge City, Stantec, you can see it. And it's all about how we have the opportunity to go from pave and pipe to slow and spread. Water is gold. And the more we can take water and use it on our roofs, in our washing machines, in our gardens, and and just enjoy it instead of, you know, getting rid of it right away and putting it in a pipe under our city where it's doing nobody any good. Right. So when you're working with nature, so the Don River Project is, is working with nature, right? Yes, because... So because, okay, Corktown Common is, you know, was the first piece, phase one of the flood protection, the area east of the distillery, there's a big mound of, of earth and it's got a park on top and it does flood protect in the kind of traditional way. In other words, if the river started to overflow as it was turning the corner before we built the river, it would stop and be held back by that park. Okay, um, so we got a reverse L. The river's coming down and turning left. Right at that intersection, there's a very high mound called Corktown Common. It's a park, and it protects the downtown from flood. And then the river, which is kind of phase two, keeps going south instead of turning sharp left and just meanders. And it's actually in a meandering shape, um, both to mimic biomimicry the, the flow of a river and, you know, hundreds of flood models were done, which are live models of the water moving at various stages of flood from your typical just average rainfall to what they call the hundred year event, which now seems to happen every 20 years. So, yeah. you know, with climate change, we're getting more peak floods. So the river is, is designed, you know, to carry the peak flood and everything in between. Wow. So the going into how do you there's there's still water going into the city pipes. Um, I mean everybody's well, most people have disconnected their downspouts and so they can redirect the water to use it um, within their own properties and and in their own communities. But how how is the city dealing with the the wastewater and the and the rainwater that they do take in i mean is that is there anything that they can because i know that we're coming to an influx like is it something people are talking about or is it something that um has already started to be addressed well um it, it, again right at that intersection we uh built a very large it's these are things that we don't see, right? Because they're underground, but yeah. it's the size of a 
you'll have to look it up, but the Cherry uh, Cherry Street Stormwater Quality Facility is a massive project underground that redirects water and filters water before it gets to the lake. So there are many things that the city is doing at a grand scale. In the meantime, uh, there are many opportunities, however, to harness more of that rainwater uh, on the, you know, where it lands, as opposed to sending it off somewhere. One of the micro solutions that I'm actually working on now, which um, I'm hoping to get kind of interest in, um, and some, you know, Metrolinx is 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 interested in it. And we talked about it, and basically. If you're walking along a sidewalk, you may have a street tree to your right and a storm drain to your left, okay? Um, and we have the technology to divert the water from that storm drain to that tree um, before it goes back into the municipality. So imagine if everywhere you saw a storm drain and a tree, the water goes, it has this kind of loop, like a diverting loop that goes first into the soil where the tree is. And, and, and the soil does a couple of things. It cleans the water and you know holds some of the salt, right? And then the roots of the trees are going to take in that water. So you don't have to go around watering the trees because the trees are taking in the water from the street that's been cleaned by the soil. And then the trees grow faster because they're getting the water from the street. And then they shade people. And then they start to create this kind of little closed, you know, looped nitrogen cycle and, and bring uh, cooling to the public. And then what's happening is as the tree grows, it's taking more and more water. And there's less and less impact on the municipal system. So there's an example of how to both increase our tree canopy tenfold and at the same time reduce the pressure on the pipes. Wow. You know, the water is so useful to us. There's no need to put it in drains. And yet we put it in drains because that's what we've done for decades. And and that's what we feel is the way it's Roman times. Let's yeah. not say let's not say <laughs> hundreds of years we, we go back to the romans i blame them no, okay. seriously like this is this is not an easy thing it's not an easy thing and and it, it you know it's just not an easy thing it takes time and it takes will um and interestingly i, I i'm thinking it might actually be the private sector that will take it on first um because it, if they can uh, if they can build in their stormwater recovery with trees, then the land becomes more valuable. Uh, you know, uh, land that is near a tree-lined street is, you know, a, a, any, as you know, like any yeah. property that is on a beautiful tree-lined street is more valuable than a property that's just next to a hard sidewalk. Yeah. So if you do that and you're also taking up stormwater, then when you do a new development, you don't, you know, in the suburbs or large developments and they have to have like acreages, like five, 10 acres of land that they reserve to let the stormwater go there. And stormwater has to be, stay on their site. So if they redesign 
and build in this, you know, diversion drain to the trees. The trees grow. Their stormwater is dealt with by the trees. Uh, they can reduce the size of their stormwater pond and they have more land to develop on. So it's financially beneficial. And to me, the solutions that are going to get traction have to have a better return on investment or they're not going to happen. And many environmentalists talk about this, how the economy and the environment can be aligned and will be aligned. And the better the environment does, the better the economy does. And that's just a fact. We, yeah. the, the ozone got better during COVID. So did the economy. Right. The, it's interesting that the city's doing this massive project uh, at Cherry Beach. And yet in my world of residential design, very few people know about it. And so there's always this, oh, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do that? But it, there are real reasons why. And and uh, if we can get the city to tell us more about what they do, um, people might have a better understanding of, of what the city does and and the need for it. Um, and then they can contribute their own little piece to that, uh, to that making the the city a better place to live in. It's it's very it's well very... there's a lot of noise, you know, it's really hard, right? Like I I have to say it's this you know, we we had a planner who spent a lot of time talking about what the city does and that didn't work either because everybody complained that it was just a lot of talk. So it's 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 tough to ask our city to do the work and and the advertising. Uh, you know like I mean I know what you're saying it's important to know I I just get very excited about everything the city is doing because you know they're constantly trying to look for fresh ways to solve problems Um, just look at King Street do you know about the King Street pilot Uh, briefly yes Uh, not in detail but I know something's happening well so so what happened was um, I think it was just before COVID uh, you know, our offices are down at King and, oh, sorry, at Spadina and Wellesley, so just a block south of King Street. And um, they called it a pilot, and Friday night, all they did was change the street signs, so little pieces of metal with arrows on them, put down jersey bars, which are little blocks of concrete that they dropped with a truck, and you were not allowed to stay on King Street for more than a block at a time. You got to the intersection and it said, turn left or right, all along King Street. And they did it in a weekend. And the point was that King Street was gonna be given back to the pedestrians and the streetcar users, streetcar inhabitants or whatever. And um, huge success. And it was done in a weekend. And all of a sudden, there was never traffic on King Street. You could cross the street in the middle of the street. It was packed with pedestrians. And someone just told me this week that they did, you know, like a study of, you know, money that came in to these uh, organizations after, like to the shop shop fronts along, you know, restaurants and shop fronts. And, um, you know, 
the economy for them got better, and most of the money that was spent came for pedestrians and cyclists. So there are ways that the city is trying to, you know, as they say in the design industry, iterate, you know, test out ideas. Sometimes pilots are the best way, better than, you know, all this planning we do for years and years. Yeah. So To just try it out. I don't know if that answers your question, but pilots are a great way to... Um, to advertise that the city indeed is is trying to find new ways to solve um, solve for the city. I, and certainly I, our city did a lot of public realm work too, you know. Yeah, I I no, you're right. There's it's the too much to ask the city to do all this work and then tell everybody about it. And you're right. <laughs> I, the, I mean it's possible doing this, doing these small projects, these pilots to try it out actually is probably a much better way of, of telling people what the city does for them. Uh, the bike lanes that they're putting all over the city have been met with a lot of um, frustration and um, and a lot of yeah, discussion. Those, those could have taken more thought, maybe, <laughs> some of them. I don't know. But, you know, I think partly, too, um, those bike lanes are now have been, you know, fully overtaken by electric bikes. And that's an issue, right? Like there's so many technological and use changes. It's hard uh, for the city to keep up, right? Right. And, and, and uh, yeah. But you don't know what you don't know. And, and until you try it, it's, it's hard to right. figure out what all the, what all the challenges will be. And all the benefits. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, the thing is, they have done a lot of these temporary things. And so now, you know, for instance, if they need to take the bike lanes off young, which maybe that should be done, they can, you know, nothing's too permanent, right? Right, right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we covered an awful lot. Uh, thank you so <laughs> much. Yeah, I don't know if we... Did, did we go through all your questions? I can't even remember. <laughs> um, we did briefly. I mean, I, I don't think I asked them specifically, but uh, each discussion segued into the next uh, question anyway, just naturally. So uh, so it was wonderful. Nice. Nice. Thank you very much. Nice. Um, oh, well, thank you. This was a ton of fun. Yeah. This was really, and I think when uh, Matthew gets back from school, uh, maybe we can have another discussion with him because I know that the work that he's doing uh, at school is fascinating. And, um, and I think we can all, we're all doing our own thing. If we come back together, I think we could have a, a really interesting conversation. That sounds great, Jennifer. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Well, that was a fantastic conversation with Brenda Webster, a renowned urban designer. If you would like to know more about her or reach out to her, you can find her on stratacom.com's website. Thanks again for joining us and hope to see you next time.